Father, we pray that as we look at your words this morning, we may see that they are not simply words, as the Thessalonians did, but they may come with power, the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. And we pray that you would impress your word upon us and upon our hearts. And with your help, we might be those through whom the message rings out as it did with the Thessalonians. Help us, please, we pray. Soften our hard hearts, open our blind eyes, that we might see the glory of Christ afresh. In his name we pray. Amen. So one of the reasons um, we are looking at Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, these next few weeks, um, is because of this. It's because at times life can feel like something of an, an uphill struggle, can't it? It can all feel pretty hopeless. The, the metaphorical pushing the boulder up the hill like Sisyphus and yet knowing the inevitability of having to do it again because you take your eyes off the ball and it's at the bottom of the hill again. And so you look out at the world and it's new cycle after new cycle after new cycle of, of difficulty. We feel overwhelmed of all that's going on internationally, nationally, locally even. Are we looking in our own lives? No doubt you have boulders that you are pushing up the hill, situations at work, struggles in relationships or friendships or friends and family who are finding things difficult. Maybe things that nobody else knows about. But you feel that difficulty. And those things can consume us, and we long for some sort of progress, and we long for some sort of relief. We long for things to get better. And yet one of the big questions that Paul will ask us through this first letter to the church in Thessalonica is how much is Christian hope a daily part of your life? How much is your hope in Christ real on the ground as you seek to live for Jesus. It's a drumbeat that will go through the letter. We'll see it week after week after week. In fact, at the end of each chapter, I'm in the letter. Paul is writing to this, this green, raw, fledgling church, and he wants to show them how the Christian hope of Jesus returning makes a difference today. Makes a difference tomorrow morning. Makes a difference on a Wednesday and a Thursday. It impacts daily life now. And so we might be disappointed, but he won't talk that much really about God changing our circumstances, about God making our life environment a bit better. He won't give us that kind of a hope, but he will talk of the hope of Jesus returning, the true and better hope that we need, and one that will surpass our little dreams and ideals of what we think we need. And so if you ever feel dark and hopeless and I suspect many of us do, then let these words from Paul be a, be a tonic for us these next couple of months. In the midst of the dark and scary night, know that there is a light, a dawn that is coming. And that makes all the difference. It's striking. Um, I think the hopelessness that I described at the start, for many, is seen particularly in the state of um, American politics at the moment. I know a number of friends um, in the States who are almost literally pulling their hair out, trying to understand 
what's going on and why. I heard a fact last week that six out of seven people who, who are seeing a shrink in New York at the moment are due to Trump anxiety. And what's been striking, if you've kept up to, to date with any of this, are the two general tactics that have been used um, as they've sought to attack each other, as they've sought to question each other. And it's certainly been ramped up these last few weeks particularly. So either there's questions about the results, about the track record of the opponent. Let's, let's look at what they've done. Let's see if they can follow through and deliver. Or there's this much more closer to home attack. It's personal. It's questions about the politicians themselves. It's emails that have been deleted. It's, it's tax, that's, tax that's not been paid. It's not looking or sounding presidential. It's, it's sleaze and corruption and skeletons in the closets. Some of those legitimates, some not. So you either go for what they do, or you go for who they are. And do you know what's striking as we come to this letter is that's basically, I think, what's happened to Paul. That seems to be the exact, exactly the situation in Thessalonica. It's very striking. Paul spends a long time in this letter defending himself. He feels the need to put his side across. Most likely, and we'll see it in weeks ahead, it's to do with criticisms and allegations from the local synagogue about Paul. But let me just try and fly over the letter. Maybe have it open in front of you. It's page 1186, just to try and fly over and just give you a bit of a background as to what's going on and why he's saying what he's saying. So chapter 1, where we are this morning, Paul seems to be defending his results, his track record, what he has done. So they say, Paul... Paul, look at this tiny church. It's rubbish. How can your ministry be authentic? How, how can this weak, runty little excuse for a church show that you're legitimate? And Paul says, no, 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 no. no that they might be small, but look at them more carefully, and you will see the living God at work in these people and through these people. He's transformed them. They are the real deal. They are authentic. Chapter 2 and 3 Um, We'll see next week and the week after. He's defending himself, his ministry methods, the message that he brings. So they say, Paul, you're just like the other shady peddlers around. You take advantage of people, you, you bring your truth at a cost, but really you manipulate. You're after people's money. Look, you've not even been back to visit them, Paul. What kind of an apostle are you? What kind of a minister are you? And Paul says, well, as a gospel minister, we were transparent, we were open. You could see what we were doing. We charged nothing at all. We, we worked to fund our mission. We worked to fund the work. We are the real deal. And then only in chapters 4 and 5 do you actually get something of the, the meat of the letter, some of the doctrinal and lifestyle correction, things they've misunderstood. But over half the letter is Paul defending himself, who he is, and his ministry, what he has done. But Paul and his ministry seem to be under the microscope in this letter. Opponents asking questions. But he's always had a hard time there. You can catch up with it in in Acts chapter 17. He seems to have to defend himself there as well. You can see it probably as he was there only three weeks, three Sabbaths in um, Thessalonica. This rich, busy, bustling, uh, trading Greek um, market center by the seaside. And three weeks there, and he and his, his group are, are pushed out by a hired mob being paid for by a bunch of jealous Jews, the local synagogue. 
And he's had to flee. It's, it's horrible. Painfully ripped away. I think this brand new baby church, fragile. And Paul has had to go. And there's pain, there's uncertainty, there's fear. Will the work continue? Will, will they be doing okay? He doesn't know if the mob has got to them as well. He doesn't know if they're still going on with Jesus. And so there is pain for Paul. At least that is until Timothy returns to them after a fact-finding mission. We'll hear about it in um, chapter 3. If you look at the NIV, if you've got one in front of you, bottom of page 1187, you see Timothy's encouraging report is the, the headline given to us. But they've come back with excellent news. Paul could breathe again. Paul could live again because this tiny baby fledgling church is flourishing. And what we'll see in chapter 1 is as he... As he sees how, as he says how they are doing, so he legitimizes his own ministry as well. The clear results show this is a supernatural transformation that shows the gospel is true, shows that Paul is authentic. This isn't just people trying a bit harder. This isn't just people turning over new leaves. This is God's Holy Spirit at work in the lives of believers, bringing genuine change and transformation. So it's been my prayer as we look at these um, verses today and this letter these next couple of months that we too would have that same mindset that they would. As he writes this glowing recommendation of this church in Thessalonica, with his help we might be changed by something of these truths afresh. Maybe at the start of a new academic year. Maybe it's a good opportunity just to take a step back again and to have a look at what Paul says. And then to ask ourselves the tricky questions. How are we doing? Are we, are we Thessalonian in our attitudes, our focus, our mindsets? And the two things that we will ask this morning, um, one, um, one to ten, we will see, uh, Paul asks us the question, what do you do with your Bible? And what do you do with your life? So what do you do with your Bible? Have a look at verses four to eight with me. Let me read them again. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. Do you see how they're a model? Do you see how do they respond to the message from God? How do they respond to the word of God? They hear it and they accept it. And we'll see as well in what they then do with it. So how do they accept it? Verses 5 and 6. It, it, it is remarkable. They accept it as truth. They accept it as God's word. Not simply a nice idea. Not simply a hypothesis. Not simply truth for Paul. But truth for them from God. And they accept it even despite the reality of opposition and suffering that would come. It's truth from God, and we see more of that next week. So 2 verse 13, just look across. 
And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. You see, so as they hear in these three short weeks or so a message from Paul, from the Lord, it's not just human words they hear but they recognize it for coming from the Lord himself. Powerful words, I take it, about God, about sin, about Jesus Christ, about judgment. And these words imprint themselves supernaturally upon this young church. The words, they come, verse 5, with, with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. And the danger is we just kind of slip into autopilot when we open the Bible for ourselves or when we come to church week by week. So the question must be, how do we receive the word of God as it comes to us? I ask you and I ask myself, do we see them as, as human or divine words? Do we dismiss them or do we crave them and long for them? Do we gloss over them? Or do we build our life upon them? Are they a nice added extra? The kind of air conditioning of the Christian life? Or, or actually the engine? The heart of what we build upon? Or what about the bits we don't like very much? What about the bits that in our culture, in our society, make us feel a bit uncomfortable or unpopular and we find it hard to accept them? Do we, do we describe those bits as a bit more human? And yet the rest is a bit more divine. Do we tweak or ignore the bits that make us feel uncomfortable, the bit too close to the bone? Or, or do we see it as the word of God? Or, or maybe, what about this? Maybe we love the Bible. We love reading it. We love studying it. It brings us joy. And, and yet often... When we sort of dig down, it becomes a bit too much about getting a, a handle on the passage, having the information that we can file away. It's more academic than perhaps heart-transforming. We get excited about the minutiae, the, the passage structure, the, the themes of the book, and those are all good things. But we miss the Christ to whom they refer. Yeah, I'm struck by the Thessalonians who, who received this word of God, who received the gospel to the extent that they would suffer for it, and yet they were transformed by that message. I do find the second half of verse 6 very striking and makes me feel quite uncomfortable. That they welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I think the problem for us in, in the West is it, it's just about okay to be a Christian still. We're a bit weird. We're a bit na naive, but we're kind of tolerated. And yet what about brothers and sisters around the world for whom second half of verse 6 is, is reality because they know that as they receive the word of God, they're going to get it in the neck as they trust Christ. 
What about if it might cost us our, our business, our friendships, our family, our house, our life even? An extraordinary example from these young Christians in Thessalonica. That seems to have been the reality. Again, you get it in Acts 17. Um, you can have a look there in home groups. But also it's at the end of chapter 2 as well. Um, chapter 2 and verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your fellow citizens the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. That, that must be part of the Holy Spirit's work, mustn't it? As, as the word comes and it is taken by the people, so they have a deep conviction, they have a power, there's joy despite severe suffering. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you long to be that kind of a Christian? kind of a Christian who, who takes what the Lord says and applies it regardless of how people will treat us. Maybe pray that we would be like that. Pray that we would be that kind of a church. Not that we go looking for persecution or suffering, but that we would be those who don't shy away from it. And with God's help and with his strengthening, we follow Christ's example, we press on, we persevere. So what do we do with our Bible, Paul? Well, well, we trust it as God's word. We, we're transformed by it. But not just in a private, keep it to yourself behind closed doors type way. Again, the challenge for this young church, from this young church, is they've been spreading it around. They've been infected by this truth. And now they're infecting others. It's brilliant. Verse 8, the, the Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Friends, when we truly grasp something of all that we have in Christ, we, we have to tell others, don't we? So why is it so hard? Why are we not more like the Thessalonians? Why are we not famous for the message ringing out from us as they were? Can I say, if it's your first week or so in Oxford, or you've been here for a month or so, can I urge you to nail your colours to the mast early on, to let people know that you are one of Christ's? It gets harder and harder as it goes on and on. Tell them early. And I want you to listen to this quote as well. I came across it a while ago. From It's a well-known atheist, a, a mag magician from Penn and Teller. If you know Penn, he's the big guy. You may have heard this before, but I find it very challenging and very striking. Um, he's an ardent atheist. Uh, he was given a Bible by somebody waiting for him outside one of his shows. And he says this on his blog. He said, I've always said I don't respect people who don't evangelize. If you believe there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward... How much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelize? If I believe without a shadow of doubt there was a truck coming at you and you didn't believe it, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Ouch. Doesn't he shame us? Some people even expect us to talk to them. 
that they respect us for talking to them. The Thessalonians were renowned for this message ringing out from them. They were famous for it. Wouldn't it be amazing to be famous for that? Not in an annoying, pushy way, but simply for that message to, to bubble up and overflow out of us into others and others and others. Through personal conversations, through, through events perhaps we put on as a church, through harvest barbecues perhaps, come after the service. I'd love to encourage you to humbly, sensitively, prayerfully stick your neck out a bit more. To, to be prepared for it to be a bit socially awkward. Because the message we have matters. So they're models for us as to how to uh, relate to God's word. What do we do with the Bible? They receive it well despite suffering. They receive it as the word of God and they pass it on to others. They are they're renowned for the message being passed on. They're models too, secondly, for what you do with your life. That is, what does the transformed life look like for a church who have taken on the gospel and been changed by it? And you get two little triads, I think, um, in this passage. Two little threes together as Paul describes their new life. So have a look down. In verse 2 to 3 you'll see um, a famous triad from Paul, faith, love, and hope. So we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. So faith, love, hope. That's one way of looking at them, faith, love, hope. And then you look at the bottom, though, the bottom of the chapter, verse 9b to 10. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Okay, so you've got faith, love, hope, and you've got turn, serve, and wait. I think those two go together. So verse 2 to 3, faith, love, hope. And I think they then couple with turn, serve, wait. So Paul starts and finishes his introduction showing us how this church has been transformed. What does that mean? It means that their new faith means they turn to God from idols. It means their love for him and for his people means that they labor and they serve. And they have this hope, which means they wait for Christ to come back. So we're going to zoom into each one in turn. Faith and turn. Again, there'll be more opportunity in home groups to discuss this, to see if you, you're persuaded by these three things going together. You can come and grab me afterwards over coffee and milk and one sugar, please. So we've said before at Magdalen Road that, that everyone has faith in something. Everyone trusts something. Everyone leans on, relies on something, something or someone to give them life, joy, meaning, purpose, salvation. There are things that we can't live without, things that we, we can't do without and we, we pursue. On paper, we know it's meant to be God and the gospel and we can tick the box. In reality, it might be other things. Paul came onto the scene and many of the Thessalonians would have worshipped the various pagan gods of the time. For, for us, we probably don't worship them, but the kind of functional gods that we worship might be popularity. 
or, or family, or a nice house, or a respectable family, or, or a degree, or savings that bring us security, stuff, control over our life and our surroundings and our situations, a decent pension. Everybody trusts in something. What would you say you trust in? What might be the God idol that you need to turn from to him? There was a guy called Jonathan Sachs writing in the Times a few years ago, looking back at the economic crash that happened in the UK and around the world. Um, And he said this. He was speaking of the God of money. He said, the richer Britain became, the more cynical it grew. It put its faith in a financial house of cards. It, it, It looked at house prices and thought itself rich. It created the religion of shopping whose original sin was not having this year's model or must-have, and whose salvation lay in, and get this, whose salvation lay in spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need for the sake of a happiness that doesn't last. Doesn't last. And he said that with hindsight, as the markets crashed and people were left desolate. And we treat them like they're alive, these gods whom we serve, these idols of verse 9. But they're dead. They're dead. I take it that's why he will say you turn to God from idols, to the true and living God. These things, they promise us life. They promise us joy. They, they promise us salvation, but they're dead and they can't really deliver. Jesus can because he's alive. And there's a sense in which we do that once. We turn to God from idols once. It's a once and for all thing. It's a a faith once thing. It's a new path thing. But it's a daily thing as well. Martin Luther says the whole of the believer, the whole life of the believer was one of repentance. We turn to God once, but we turn to him daily, hourly even. From idols to the true and living God. And again, this, this faith, this turning to him is not just a doctrinal tick box. I know what I'm meant to believe, but it's worked out in practice, which is why he says your work produced by faith. It sets them apart from what they were like. It sets them apart from what their neighbors were like. They're to be a people who labor because they trust the Lord. So they have this faith and therefore turn, and they also love and serve, secondly. So as we turn to God from idols, we love differently. Our hearts are captured by him. We love him, we love people, we become servers. And again, if you know Thessalonians, you might know or remember this is something they were good at, something he will go on to commend them for later in the letter. It's something that he says, you love each other, but love each other more and more. I urge you to do so more and more. But you see, as they love him and as they serve him and his people, again, the question that we must ask is, oh, whom do I love? Whom do I serve? Am I ultimately a self-lover or a God-lover? Am I a self-server or a God-server? And love for others, serving others is messy. 
and it's tiring and it's frustrating. It's draining. It might be unthanked. It might be unseen. There will always be a cost. It will always mean that we don't do something that we would rather be doing. Maybe you're preparing hard and working at a Bible study or preparing for junior church, and that means you don't get to enjoy your duvet as much as you would like. Maybe you you go and visit that person who needs some time, which means you don't get to watch Strictly Come Dancing. Maybe you go to the prayer meeting instead of going for a run. Maybe you, you give money and your time which means that you don't have so much money or time because you give it, because you love. That's the question. Maybe that's the thing to chew over in in home groups on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. If you aren't in a home group, we'd love to get you into a home group. Please do come and chat to me. But the question is, how much do I love and serve self when it really comes down to it? Or how much do I love and serve him and people when it really comes down to it. So faith goes with turn, love goes with serve, and thirdly, hope goes with wait. As we started this morning, do you know, we're a people who have a certain hope. We wait for Christ to return. And that waiting, that hope that is definite, changes Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's a big theme in the letter, and wherever you scratch, actually, is just below the surface. How much is Christian hope a part of your faith, genuinely, in a culture that lives for now, in a culture that is all about today, fast food, getting what I need now, I can't be bothered to wait for this Wi-Fi to work. In a culture of now, how much does the Christian hope shape our perspective today? Because again, it was there for the Thessalonians. So verse 3, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Many of you will have come across John Bunyan's Allegory of the Christian Life, Pilgrim's Progress. And he famously wrote of the parchment roll uh, given to evangelists, um, given by evangelists, sorry, to Christian that reads... Um, fly from the wrath to come. And so begins this book as he travels and wanders around from the wrath to the celestial city. Wrath isn't a popular topic, is it? Wrath is not something we warm to. And yet I want to say, I want to put it to you that wrath is good news. That might grate when I say that, but I think wrath is good news. Why do I say that? Why do I think God's wrath is good news? Because Stalin died in his bed. Millions of people died under his regime. They died through famine, they died through murder. And yet he died in his bed. Did he get away with it? Well, in human terms, perhaps. But actually, verses like this, 1 verse 10, show that he hasn't got away with it. Is good news because we live in a moral universe where people will be called to account, where, where justice will be seen. But of course, it's very bad news too. Because when we realize what God is like and when we realize what we are like, 
When we want justice and we long for justice, we end up condemning ourselves because of our own sin, our own hearts. It leaves us all in the dock. And yet verse 10 again. You see, look at Jesus. This Jesus who is coming back. He was the one raised from the dead. He is the one who died and was raised again. And him being raised again is God saying his death is sufficient for the sins of his people. His death is sufficient to bring us forgiveness. So wrath is good news and wrath is bad news, but the cross is such good news for his people. It means we can have confidence. It means we can trust him. And and if I want to say, and I can't miss this, if you haven't already, let me urge you to trust Christ for yourselves. To, to flee from the wrath to come, to flee to Christ, the one who was raised from the dead and the one who will return. And just as we round the final bend as well, just notice, notice with me that the hope of the Thessalonians as they wait for the return of Christ is not because of their faith and love. That is, it's not that they have earned their standing with God. They've got enough faith and enough trusting and enough love and enough serving. And and that means they can be hopeful. That means they know they're okay because they've done enough. No, no, no. Their confidence is because Jesus is coming back. And they knew he was coming back. And so they trust him. And, And they will endure despite persecution because they know he's coming back. They're not confident because they've done enough. They're confident because he's done enough. And he will return. Which means they will press on despite persecution and hardships. A bit of suffering now, that's nothing compared to what will happen when Jesus comes back as they follow in his footsteps. Suffering now and glory later. And friends, that is just us getting going. There's lots more to be saying. There's lots more that we will see in um, Thessalonians over the next few weeks. But let me, let me urge you to be praying for us as a church as we look at these um, chapters. Um, pray that we might be Thessalonian as a church, that we would know what to do with our Bible, with the truth that God has revealed to us through his Son and his word about him, that we would take it as the word of God, as a divine word rather than a human word, and that like them, despite suffering, we would, we would trust it. We would be transformed by it so we'd know what to do with our lives. Faith means we turn to God from idols. Love means we love him and love his people and so we serve. And yet that hope overarching everything. We know he's coming back. So we know what matters now. Let me pray. Father, thank you that the Lord Jesus will return. Thank you that he died, he was raised again, has ascended to your right hand, and one day will come back. We pray that we might trust that truth. We pray that that reality would shape how we live now. Help us, please, to be those who who have faith in you, who turn to you from idols, a once and forever thing and a daily thing. Guard us from trusting the wrong things for life and joy and salvation. 
dead things that will not satisfy? And might we be those who, who love you and love people because we see how much you've loved us in your son? And give us that hope and endurance that means we're prepared to, to stick our necks out because we see it's worth it. Because one day Jesus will come back. Thank you that he died and was raised again. And thank you for an opportunity to remember that as we share the Lord's Supper in a moment. In his name we pray. Amen.